Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Trita Parsi of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, who talks about the high price President Biden is paying for his support for Israel's indiscriminate bombing of Gaza that's killed 16,000 Palestinian civilians. Salma Abu Ayash, a Palestinian-American educator and social justice activist who discussed the long oppression of the Palestinian people at this year's National Day of Mourning in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And Greg Grandin, Pulitzer Prize-winning author and professor of history at Yale University, and Peter Kornblum of the National Security Archive, who consider the dark legacy of the late Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. As global leaders debate a clean energy transition at the United Nations COP28 climate summit in Dubai, Saudi Arabia is working to boost demand for fossil fuels in Africa and other developing nations. The plan to boost oil demand calls for increasing the use of cheaper fossil fuel-burning cars, buses, and planes. It also calls for the development of so-called power ships, which use dirty, heavy fuel oil to produce electricity for coastal communities. The head of the World Bank recently warned that unless wealthy nations help developing countries move toward renewable energy, There was no hope of ending carbon emissions by 2050 and averting climate catastrophe. The Guardian reports that in recent months, the Saudis have made deals with Nigeria, Rwanda, and Ethiopia to develop demand for hydrocarbon resources. In response, Mohamed Addo, the director of the think tank PowerShift Africa, says... The Saudi government is like a drug dealer trying to get Africa hooked on its harmful product. In Macomb County, Michigan, a swing district with many conservative Democratic voters, there's lots of economic anxiety over rising prices for food and housing, despite low unemployment. Suburban Detroit in Macomb County is seen as a swing district in the battleground state of Michigan whose electoral college votes helped Biden win his 2020 campaign. Biden's prospects to win re-election in 2024 may rest on blue-collar Democratic voters. Many of those voters are still feeling the pain from last year's huge spike in inflation that's now receding, but the state of the economy remains voters' top concern. Michigan State political scientist Matt Grossman said nationwide and in Michigan as well, there is a divergence between how people view their own economic standing versus how they feel about the economy as a whole. People have the impression that the economy is a lot worse than it is. Polls indicate that Biden's support among blacks and Latinos is soft, and his margin among young voters against Trump has shrunk 20 points from four years ago. Biden's best pitch may be his strong support for the United Auto Workers Union, whose successful strike won a 25% increase in wages and ended two-tier contracts. 
During the strike, Biden walked the picket line with UAW members, while Trump spoke at a non-union plant in Macomb County, blasting mandates for electric vehicles. In the aftermath of the late October mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine, mourners for the 18 victims filled a chapel at St. Joseph's College. The college's sponsor, the Sisters of Mercy Society of Nuns, are outspoken opponents of the gun industry for profiting from these killings. Months earlier, people gathered on the same campus to remember the life of Richard E. Dyke. Dyke rose from Milltown poverty to become the multimillionaire owner of the Bushmaster Gun Company that popularized the AR-15 semi-automatic rifle. Bushmaster rifles have been used to commit some of the nation's most deadly shootings, including the 2002 Washington, D.C. sniper murder of 10 people, the 2012 massacre of 20 first graders and six educators at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, and the murder of 10 black shoppers at a Buffalo, New York supermarket. At age 89, Dyke died a wealthy and influential man who had many high-ranking Republican friends that helped him carve out exceptions to assault weapons bans. Bushmaster rifles continue to be used in horrific mass shootings across the U.S. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. After a seven-day humanitarian pause in Israel's war in Gaza, during which Hamas released 110 Israeli and dual-national hostages and Israel freed 240 Palestinian prisoners, the temporary truce negotiated by Qatar ended on December 1st. Since Israel resumed its airstrikes and ground assault, Gaza health officials report that 1,000 people have been killed, with a total of more than 16,000 Palestinians who've lost their lives since the war began on October 7th, following the Hamas attack on Israel, that killed 1,200 men, women, and children. The United Nations top aid official said the Israeli military campaign in southern Gaza created apocalyptic conditions, ending any possibility of meaningful humanitarian operations. Meanwhile, in the Israeli-occupied West Bank, human rights groups say that extremist Israeli settlers and soldiers have killed 260 Palestinians and carried out attacks on dozens of Palestinian communities since the war started. President Biden's quiet diplomacy urging Israel to do more to prevent the deaths of Palestinian civilians has had little effect. Now Senator Bernie Sanders, independent of Vermont, and other Democratic senators say Israel must adopt measures to reduce civilian deaths in Gaza as part of receiving $14.3 billion in additional U.S. aid. Your reporter spoke with Trita Parsi, Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Here he talks about conditions in Gaza and the high price President Biden is paying for his initial support of Israel's indiscriminate bombing of Gaza that has killed so many Palestinian civilians. Well, I don't think if everyone in the United States really knew that 
Gaza was considered an open-air prison uh, even before all of this started. 2.3 million people are in a very, very small piece of land, technically still occupied by Israel because Israel has been controlling its borders, what comes in and what goes out of there. And on top of that now, you have this massive bombing campaign. 1.8 million people are internally displaced. And uh, without water, without electricity, without any food coming in from the outside, we already have a situation in which beyond the risk of getting killed in the bombing, now you also have the risk of people dying from starvation, from polluted water, etc. So from a humanitarian perspective, it's an extremely, extremely difficult and dire situation. There's an important change that seems to be taking place within the Biden administration maybe best represented by comments by Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. And and this is a quote. He said, in this kind of a fight, the center of gravity is the civilian population. And if you drive them into the arms of the enemy, you replace a tactical victory with a strategic defeat. Now, of course, that is his language in addressing the massive civilian casualties the thousands of dead children and women and men who have died in these, I think you could only describe it as indiscriminate bombing of Gaza over this seven-week period. What do you make of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's comments here? They're very important comments. I'm not convinced yet, however, that they're actually reflective of a change within the administration in the sense of the administration actually starting to favor a ceasefire and putting some pressure on Israel. So it's unclear at this point whether this is a personal analysis, an effort to show that there are some dissent within the administration on this point, or whether it actually is uh, an indication of a change that is about to come or that is growing within the administration. I certainly hope it is the latter, because the United States is absolutely in a position with the leverage that it has to be able to put an end to this fighting, pushing on both sides a ceasefire, which I think would be needed not just because of humanitarian and moral concerns, but also because as long as the fighting goes on and we don't have a ceasefire, that's also when we have these attacks against the U.S. troops in the region, which does risk creating a larger conflict and dragging the United States into a new war in the Middle East, which clearly would be against our interest, the interest of the American people, but unfortunately does not seem to have been the top concern of the administration thus far. And Trita, in your recent article where you discussed this, the ultimate cost of Biden's refusal to call for a full ceasefire in Gaza, you talk about the fact that because uh, the Biden administration has given a green light for Israel's relentless indiscriminate bombing of Gaza that has killed, as we've said, 15,000 Palestinian civilians, that this has done more damage to America's standing across the Middle East than even George W. Bush's illegal war in Iraq. Indeed, this is a strong view held by many in the region and beyond, because it's not just the damage that it has done to the U.S. in the Middle East, but also around the world, particularly in the global south, which are increasingly important countries. So this is creating a tremendous amount of damage. And the view of many uh, in the region is that it is damaging the U.S. beyond what happened with the illegal war in Iraq uh, conducted by George W. Bush administration, because at least back then, you had strong opposition 
from Germany and France and other European countries, which then did not allow that war to have a dimension or a quality looking as if it was a civilizational clash between the West and the, the Islamic world. Whereas today, unfortunately, you have very strong support or blind following by several of the key European states, including uh, Germany and the UK, uh, and only some opposition coming from smaller states such as Belgium and Spain. So as a result, it does have a stronger impression of being a civilizational war, which then does make much more damage to uh, the U.S. and the West as a whole. That was Trita Parsi, Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Find a link to his recent article titled The Ultimate Cost of Biden's Refusal to Call for a Full Ceasefire in Gaza and Related Commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The 54th Annual Indigenous National Day of Mourning was held again this year in Plymouth, Massachusetts on November 23rd when most Americans celebrate Thanksgiving. The organizers of the event, United American Indians of New England, held a rally in March to celebrate Indigenous lives, mourn what Indigenous tribes and nations have lost through settler colonialism, and to support current struggles. This year, the Palestinian fight for freedom and self-determination took center stage. Almost every speaker at the event referenced the ongoing Israel-Gaza war. One of the featured speakers was Salma Abu Ayash, a Palestinian-American engineer, educator, and social justice activist who is a founding member of the Boston Palestine Film Festival and the Center for Arabic Culture in Boston. After thanking the organizers of the event for inviting her and giving honor to her ancestors, she gave the following speech, produced and edited by Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus, who attended the march and rally. Palestinians yearn for a land where Palestinians have self-determination, liberty, sovereignty over our lands, freedom of movement, and free and to be free from the daily pogroms, killings, and incarceration that has been going on for 75 years and more. A land where anyone, whatever your relationship with the Creator or lack thereof it, is welcome to participate in building a nation with equal rights for everyone. Palestine was once such a place before the state of Israel was created on 78% of its land. Before European settler colonial invasion in the early 19th centuries, this century destroyed our societies, alienated neighbors, and turned Arab Jews and non-Jews against each other. Yes, we have a dream, and it will come true because anything short of this dream is accepting a system of genocide and oppression, continued aggression, and settler expansion. We Palestinians have all the power we need because you, indigenous people everywhere, black and brown people, the wretched of the earth, people of conscience, Jewish people who shed their fears and join this mass of love. <laughs> Working class people and all people who understand their privilege and the wrongs of their ancestors. 
Let us be clear that young black women and men and their elders, writers, artists, educators who taught us about anti-blackness, structural racism, including exposing the U.S. carceral system, these same black, young, and not so young are marching with us day in and day out, just like Palestinians march with them in Ferguson and against the prison industrial system and, and police brutality everywhere. A police that is trained in many U.S. states and towns from Boston, Cambridge, you name it, by the Israeli army. Yeah. Palestinians will acknowledge you always and hold you in our hearts in gratitude and join you in your struggles even during this dark cloud of carnage because it is one struggle. It is our collective liberation and that is our power. And now Gaza. I wonder, do we really understand what it means when 15,271 children, women, and men are killed in 40 days? But maybe you don't know what is happening in the West Bank. I'm a Palestinian from the village of Beit Umar, north of Al-Khalil, Hebron. Settlers roam with their machine guns day and night. According to the New York Times even, there are over 200 killed by settler rampages and over 2,000 injured. Some 2,650 Palestinians have been detained by the army in the West Bank. What's happening in Palestine today is a condensed, horrible version of what's been happening to us on a daily basis for over 75 years. Every report from the media should remind you that Palestinians are a people that have been living under a brutal occupation. They should also remind you that people under conditions of occupation, transfer, and continued colonization have the right to resist by any means possible. And that an occupying power an occupying power has no right to defend itself against the people it occupies. Certainly not inflict such horror, collective punishment on a whole population that has already been under siege for 16 years. We reject a state that has no constitution or defined borders and that has been deemed an apartheid state by two international organizations, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and two Israeli human rights organizations. A state that has 65 racist laws discriminating against non-Jews, including a nation-state law of the Jewish people that declares the right to exercise national self-determination to be unique only to the Jewish people, and that declares Jewish settlement as a national value. And that mandates that the state will labor to encourage and promote the establishment and development of Jewish settlement. Because we oppose and resist a settler colonial state. Palestinians have lived with peaceful Arab Jewish people for centuries. Our fight is against the white European settler project, not against our Jewish brothers and sisters. That was Sama Abu Ayash, a Palestinian-American engineer, educator, and social justice activist, who spoke at this year's National Day of Mourning in Plymouth, Massachusetts.
Find a link to a video recording of all the speakers at the event and related information by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Kissinger, who served as Secretary of State and National Security Advisor to both Presidents Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford between 1969 and 1977, died at age 100 at his home in Kent, Connecticut, on November 29th. In most obituaries, Kissinger is lauded as one of America's most powerful and influential diplomats who shaped U.S. foreign policy during the Cold War. He's credited with helping Nixon open relations with China, working to reduce tensions with the Soviet Union, and hands-on negotiations in the Middle East. But Kissinger's leading role in America's foreign policy has a well-documented dark side. He was responsible for the secret and illegal bombing of Cambodia and Laos, ignored Pakistan's mass slaughter in the nation later to become Bangladesh, greenlit Indonesia's bloody invasion of East Timor, and backed a military coup in Chile that led to the deaths of Chilean President Salvador Allende and thousands of other Chileans. All told, many historians believe, Kissinger was responsible for millions of deaths around the world. Your reporter spoke with two of the nation's leading primary researchers on the legacy of Henry Kissinger. Greg Grandin is Peter V. and C. Van Woodward Professor of History at Yale University, author of The End of the Myth, winner of the 2020 Pulitzer Prize, and Kissinger's shadow, the long reach of America's most controversial statesman. We're also joined by Peter Kornblue, director of the National Security Archives Cuba and Chile Documentation Projects, whose author are the Pinochet File, a declassified dossier on atrocity and accountability. Here they take a critical look at Kissinger's bloodstained diplomatic career. The main thing to know about Kissinger's public service is that he he served during a very consequential moment in U.S. history. Uh, he came to office in, in 1969 with Richard Nixon, and that was as the Vietnam War was going into a tailspin. And not just the Vietnam War, but pretty much the entire national security state that the U.S. had built after World War II to fight the Cold War, the crisis of U.S. authority was collapsing largely as a result of Vietnam, but not just Vietnam, uh, civil rights movement, political polarization at home. And so Kissinger kind of spans these two periods. He comes into office as this Nestor apparatus is collapsing, and he hastens its collapse with the secret bombing of Cambodia, which creates distrust and leads to Watergate. But he's also very much involved in reconstructing the national security state in the wake of that polarization, in the, in the wake of that dissensus. So Kissinger, is he's instrumental in the turn towards the Middle East after Vietnam, the recycling of petrodollars back into U.S. finance and U.S. defense industries to absorb the shock of defeat in Vietnam. He turns to Latin America. He turns to Africa. But the other thing that's important, I'll just say very, very quickly, because I want you to get, be able to get to Peter, is that he's only in office for eight years. He lived to be even being 100 and been a public figure for six decades, seven decades. 
for a good part of his life, his greater influence was as the head of Kissinger Associates, a private consultancy that pretty much brokered the turn to neoliberalism and the and privatization. You know, it was like the premier consulting firm for Russia's billionaires, Mexico's billionaires. The turn to the world that we live in, Kissinger was involved. And, and little is known of that period. We know everything, not everything, but we have the whole litany of war crimes that he was involved in. But that other period, his period as, as a private actor, is pretty much the dark side of the moon. Thank you for that, Greg. And uh, Peter, I, I wanted to get your input here on some of Kissinger's uh, policy decisions that you've spent many years documenting that uh, resulted in the overthrow of governments, Chile, for example, gross human rights abuses, and provoking dirty wars, ultimately resulting in obscene numbers of civilian deaths. Uh, it's hard to capsulize that in this short conversation, Peter, but but do tell us maybe what our listeners really do need to know who, who may not have been alive during Henry Kissinger's time in office. Well, I like to think of Henry Kissinger as a modern-day American Machiavelli. He was completely unscrupulous, completely immoral, and, and basically unprincipled in his pursuit of foreign policy. U.S. foreign policy was not about principle, was not about democracy, it was not about the value of the American public. It was about the power, the superpower of the United States of America. Kissinger was a classic, the ends justify the means, might makes right, realpolitik practitioner of U.S. foreign policy, but he really brought it to new levels. And, you know, when he had to deal with powerful countries like China and, and, and the Soviet Union, he certainly exercised his his diplomacy um, to advance U.S. interests. But he had a tremendous disdain for the smaller countries of the world in the third world, countries in Africa, uh, countries in Latin America, who he basically saw as little more than pawns on the strategic global Cold War chessboard in which he was the key player against the other superpowers of, of the world. And a number of countries fell victim to uh, to that unprincipled approach of the assertion of U.S. power, um, soft power, hard power, covert powers in the case of Chile. Uh, and it led to support for dictatorial rule and during the Pinochet era, after the coup in, in Argentina, um, it led to the United States uh, government turning uh, its back completely on the issue of violations of human rights and, in fact, just supporting those human rights violations directly and indirectly. You know, not only was uh, a stain that will never go away from Kissinger's uh, legacy, but it's also about the legacy of U.S. foreign policy, which he of which he became, you know, one of the most famous representatives. That was Greg Grandin, Pulitzer Prize-winning author and professor of history at Yale University, and Peter Kornblue of the National Security Archive. Find a link to the full 30-minute interview, their respective Kissinger obituaries and related commentary, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You 
You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs at streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WPKN in Bridgeport, Connecticut, KPSQ in Fayetteville, Arkansas, KKRN in Round Mountain, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Scott Harris.